The White House pushing Israel to adjust rules of engagement after the IDF accidentally killed three hostages. The lead starts right now. New gripping accounts from hostages formerly held by Hamas, their horror while in captivity, including dodging airstrikes from Israeli forces. Plus, Jews in America targeted again. More than 200 fake bomb threats and SWAT calls, swatting calls in one weekend alone. What law enforcement sources are telling CNN about what's being done to track down those responsible and... As Donald Trump claims immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of America, CNN's K-File is unearthing Trump's defense of a man convicted in election interference crimes, once best known on Twitter for racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and worse. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and top Biden administration officials publicly suggesting Israel needs to change its approach to fighting Hamas in Gaza more than 10 weeks into this war. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Tel Aviv earlier today where he met with both his counterpart and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. During a press conference after those meetings, Secretary Austin said they discussed ways to transition away from Israel's bombardment of Hamas in Gaza to more surgical operations, to more specifically target members of Hamas without civilian casualties. We heard a similar message from White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby earlier today, suggesting Israel needs to change its rules of engagement. After its soldiers shot and killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza on Friday, Israeli officials are releasing more details about that incident that killed Yotam Chaim, Samer Talalka, and Alon Shimriz. The IDF says these photos show how those three hostages were using leftover food to write messages on sheets. The words read, help, and three hostages in Hebrew. Israeli officials admit the three hostages were killed while waving a white flag, a sign of surrender. The IDF says it is investigating what happened, but the chief of staff of the Israeli army admonished IDF soldiers over the weekend. Three people came out. They took into account that they were taking a risk in approaching IDF soldiers. To reduce the risk, they really thought they took their shirts off so that no one would think they had explosives. They held a white cloth on a stick to identify themselves. They approached talking in Hebrew. They shouted, help. What if it is two Gazans with a white flag who come out to surrender? Do we shoot at them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Israeli forces also say that they have discovered the largest Hamas tunnel to date, running two and a half miles under Gaza, wide enough to drive a car through. Israel claims Hamas used the tunnel to move troops and as a launching point for attacks. The IDF now plans to destroy the tunnel. As the world has been calling for the IDF to tone down its campaign in Gaza, Netanyahu is also facing increasing pressure from the families of hostages inside Israel. CNN's Jeremy Diamond starts off our coverage today from Tel Aviv. The pleas are only growing more desperate. I begged the cabinet and we all warned that the fighting would likely harm the hostages. Unfortunately, I was right. Recently freed hostages and the families of those still captive are ramping up the pressure on the Israeli government to reach a deal for their freedom after Israeli soldiers mistakenly shot and killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza. Their desperate plea smeared onto a white sheet on the building adjacent to where they were killed. Help! Three hostages read the Hebrew letters stained with red sauce. 
Former hostages, like Daron Katz-Asher, who was shot as she was whisked into Gaza, now beginning to share their stories of captivity. The first day was foggy because I lost a lot of blood, and they stitched my wounds on a sofa with the girls next to me. Easy to understand that it was without anesthesia. In an interview on Israeli TV, she revealed that she and her two daughters spent part of their captivity not in a tunnel, but hidden in a hospital. We were in a 12-meter room, 10 people, no beds, only a sink. And to go to the toilet, we had to knock on the door. They could open it after five minutes or after an hour and a half. Small girls couldn't hold it. Cramped conditions, but also unending fear. Fear. Fear that because my girls were crying or making a noise, they would get an order from above, be taken from me. Fear. Always fear. For 49 days, Katz Asher shielded her daughters from that fear, until the moment they were handed to the Red Cross on the streets of Gaza, where hundreds of people crowded their vehicle. It was the first time after a month and a half that Roz said, Mom, I'm scared. Multiple former hostages also described the terrors of living under Israeli bombardment in Gaza. There was a bombardment on the adjacent house. It sounded like it was going to hit us. One of the guards was notified that his family member is dead. So you tell yourself, I hope he doesn't turn against us. For others, that fear and uncertainty continues, including for Sharon Aloni Cunio, whose husband is still captive. Every minute we're waiting is like a Russian roulette. Will they live through the day or not? She and her daughter are also still living with the trauma of their captivity. We all have so many triggers, every little noise, every door slam, every airplane flying. The girls get charged and cling on to me, tantrums, because they had to be so quiet for 52 days, closed up in a single room. Life has changed. This is not life. Nearly every single former hostage spoke of feeling abandoned by their government while in captivity, now channeling that feeling into action. I think that everyone needs to understand that not enough is being done in order to free the hostages from the Gaza Strip. They need to come back now. You have to do everything you can to bring them back now. And Hamas is also trying to ramp up the pressure on the Israeli government tonight, releasing yet another propaganda video, this one featuring three elderly Israeli hostages, including 79-year-old Chaim Perry, who uh, pleads with the Israeli government to secure their unconditional surrender. Tonight, the Israeli Defense Forces spokesman Daniel Hagari is calling this video a criminal terror video, and he said we are doing everything in order to return you safely. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. And joining me now is Gilad Korngold, his daughter-in-law, Adi, and his two grandchildren, eight-year-old uh, Neve and three-year-old Yael, were all released last month as part of that prisoner swap between Hamas and Israel. His son, Tal Shoham, is still being held hostage by Hamas. Um, Gilad, how is the family holding up knowing that Tal is still being held hostage somewhere? Well, uh, all the family, I mean, the, my daughter-in-law and my grandsons came back from uh, Gaza from a uh, long time in there uh, in bad uh, condition mentally. 
uh, physically so uh, fair enough, but uh, there was a bad uh, mental uh, condition. Um, my uh, three years old uh, uh, um, granddaughter, she started to be a little bit better, but for sure uh, they need a father to be, to be recovered. Uh, it will take a long time. And the main, the main power in this family is Tal, and is uh, really missing them to be recovery. Uh, I'm not sure in full, but uh, maybe yeah. a normal life. Yeah, we're looking at pictures of your of your beautiful family, um, and you say Yael is doing better. Um, uh, how is uh, Neve and how is Adi? Okay, so Neve. Uh, when it was captured from the safe house, they take him from the windows. So uh, Nave saw everything in the kibbutz in Berry. I mean, everything. So because he's eight years old, you understand that it's a huge problem to, to forget this, uh, these things from his uh, head. Uh, it's very sad. But, uh, you know, they slowly, slowly, the, the, the authorities here in Israel uh, take care of them. Uh, I hope everything will be okay. But again, without the father, I believe they not uh, full uh, recovery. Have they told you any details about their time in captivity, where they were kept, how they were treated? Uh, well, uh, how were they treated? I didn't talk, I didn't ask, okay? Uh, probably they talked to somebody else here in Israel, but not to me. I don't allow to ask questions. Uh, yes, it was October 7. Uh, they came visit uh, Adi's mother and father. Uh, once a month, they live in the north of Israel, country, in the country. Uh, they came once a month our area. I live also in kibbutz uh, near Berry, but far from the border. Uh, so uh, the first night they sleep in Berry, and then the second night they're supposed to come to my house, to my family, to enjoy a wonderful day. But in this terrible day, uh, they stay in the kibbutz in Berry, and everything uh, happens 6 o'clock, like everybody knows, 6.20. Um, in the same, about, about 10, 30 in the morning, uh, my son uh, surround and open the window and they ask him how many people there is. He said uh, there is uh, seven people, a woman and children, and also uh, this father that he was murdered on the first day. Mm. Uh, my son was taken from the safe, safe room first. Since then, uh, they didn't saw him without any, um, we know that he taken a life, okay, full of air, uh, with the clothes and shoes. He was not hurt. And they throw him to a car trunk and drive to, um, to Gaza, I guess. Yeah. This is the last time we hear for him, but uh, I insist that he uh, was taken alive. I mean, I hope it's okay, but since then we don't have any sign of life from him. The other family was taken apart. There was not beaten, 
But uh, there's uh, take the children separated. The mother's uh, yelling, "Give me my children back!" And they take him to Gaza Strip with their, her mother. There was also in the safe uh, room uh, her aunt, her aunt daughter, uh, six six uh, family member uh, in a jeep, and was taken to Gaza. Yeah. All this time, the together and was in the house not in the tunnel uh this this what i know and i uh i can take talk to you gilad Korngold, thank you so much for your time we are keeping tall and your entire family in our thoughts and praying for them to get back safely thank you very much coming up mark meadows denied the ruling just in after the former Trump White House chief of staff tried to challenge a criminal case against him. Plus, breaking news, Rudy Giuliani facing yet another lawsuit after the $150 million defamation verdict against him just days ago. Stay with us. And we're back with our law and justice lead. An appeals court has rejected the attempt of former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows to move his Georgia election subversion case to federal court. The three-judge panel agreed with the district court ruling that Meadows did not demonstrate that his alleged attempts to try to overturn the election results in Georgia were related in any way to his official duties as chief of staff for the Trump White House. Meadows can appeal this decision to the U.S. Supreme Court or ask the appeals court in Georgia to look at the case again. Also just into the lead, two election workers who just won a nearly $150 million verdict against Rudy Giuliani for defamation are now suing Rudy Giuliani once again. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Polans. Caitlin, uh, what are Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss asking for in this new lawsuit? Jake, they want a court's order to have Rudy Giuliani stop telling lies about them. So that trial that ended on Friday with this massive $150 million verdict from the jury, that was about statements that Rudy Giuliani was making about Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman and their work as Georgia election workers in the days after the 2020 election, 2020-2021. So that was that period of time. But during the course of the trial, he walked outside of court on the very first day and doubled down. And then at the end of the week, even after the verdict, continued to say that he had evidence and everything he wanted to say about them was true. That was just last week. And so that's why they're going back to court and suing him again. This is what they write in their lawsuit. Defendant Giuliani continues to spread the very same lies for which he has already been held liable. Defendant Giuliani's statements, coupled with his refusal to agree to refrain from continuing to make such statements, make clear that he intends to persist in his campaign of targeted defamation and harassment. It must stop. And they're trying to do that by going to court. And Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and their attorneys are saying to the judge, please help us get in, to try and get him to knock it off. No more lies. He should not be able to continue going out there and keep repeating these things about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he and his lawyer already admitted that they had defamed uh, Ruby and, and Shea in, in previously, right? And That's right. They And they are even saying uh, right now that they have agreed that Yes, the final judgment of the court is that he intentionally, maliciously made these statements about them before. But even here with this new lawsuit, we're seeing that Moss and Freeman's attorneys went to him and said, will you stop saying this? And he, he said no. And so that's why they're filing it. They put that in their filing today.
Something wrong with that guy. Caitlin Polance, thanks so much. The driver of a sedan that struck an SUV in President Biden's motorcade last night has been charged with driving under the influence of alcohol, according to authorities in Wilmington, Delaware. You can see on this video the moment that President Biden reacts to the sound of the impact before he is escorted away by the U.S. Secret Service. The Bidens were attending a holiday happy hour at the president's campaign headquarters shortly before the incident. There were no injuries, thankfully, and the Secret Service believes that the crash was an accident. CNN is on the ground in Ukraine as forces there describe new tactics of war. Russians high on drugs fighting war with gas. The landscape that has changed combat nearly two years into this war. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our world lead right now, time is running out for the White House and the Senate negotiators who are struggling to reach a U.S. border security deal that would also unlock billions of dollars worth of military aid desperately needed by Ukraine. This follows another financial setback after Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban vetoed a European Union aid package worth more than $50 billion that was set to go to Ukraine. That was on Friday. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh has this report now on how the lack of aid is already being felt on the front lines as Ukrainians try to beat back the Russian invasion. A warning, some of the footage we're about to show you is graphic. This was where the billions were meant to spell a breakthrough, but where the counteroffensive was supposed to have kicked Russia to the sea this summer, now it is mud, death, deadlock, and the remnants of American help vanishing. It's a notably different mood here, dark, frankly. In the summer, they were buoyed, feeling like they had the world at their back moving forwards. Now, it's slow, dangerous, and a real sense of, well, Despair, to be honest. 40 Russian drones swarmed one Ukrainian trench here in a day. Down here, in this tiny basement, the rulers do not get seen. The other side are not so lucky. Two Russians spotted moving a load. They guide in a mortar strike. There are just so many Russians now. Usually more meat means more mints, the commander says, but sometimes their machine struggles to handle it, and sometimes they have success. 
Batteries die fast in the cold, and Russian jamming seems to damage them too. This is Orakhiv, whose streets reek of crushed lives, and how much horror Moscow is willing to bring to be seen to win. In a matter of months since we were here in the summer, how much more damage has been done? If you've stopped thinking about Ukraine, be sure Putin hasn't. At command, they watch a wasteland, tree lines now bare. The dead, the injured. It's unclear if Russia treats them differently. Another Ukrainian drone aims for a foxhole. What they've struggled with are the waves of Russian assaults. Dozens of Russian prisoners, well-trained and equipped, backed up by armor, who they say are given a mix of drugs. They show us this graphic video of a wounded Russian, his legs severed, seemingly high enough to smile through his fatal injuries. Still, they claim they have held hard-won ground, but at a huge cost. As we say in the army, he says, the counter-offensive was smooth on paper, but we forgot about the ditches. Colossal changes are taking place. They started making their own attack drones and outnumber ours. But they use them badly, like a kid's toy. They say a drone has hit a trench and blown up a gas heater. The silence, the wait for news, agony. Does it feel like the casualties are getting worse? Every casualty makes a difference, he says. It affects everyone's morale. It's very painful for me. Sergei, aged 48, was one of four Ukrainians to die in that area that day, and about 50 that week. They haven't had to really talk about losing in this war, but this is what it looks like. It's not just drones. This Russian video seems to show a new threat, gas. Caustic, flammable. The Ukrainians have had nine incidents on this front, killing one. Here are two survivors. At first I saw smoke. We ran out from the trench and the gas suddenly caught fire. The trench was in flames. This gas burns, blinds you, you can't breathe, shoots down your throat immediately. We didn't even have a second. You inhale it twice, then you fail to breathe. Medical reports confirm their poisoning, and Ukrainian official told CNN a form of CS gas was being used. And there was injuries inside your mouth? Where? On my cheeks, everywhere, inside the mouth. My face is swollen and covered in red marks. It is an ugly, savage world, even on a TV screen, where there seems little Moscow won't do, but too much the West won't. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Orkhiv, Ukraine. And our thanks to Nick Payton Walsh in Orkhiv, Ukraine, for that report.
Coming up, a U.S. Navy officer, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, is back on American soil. He's currently locked up at a notorious prison in California after hundreds of days behind bars in Japan for a deadly accidental car crash. It's a story we've followed for years here on The Lead. And his wife is going to join me next for her first interview since his return to the United States to give us an update on the case. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Ridge Alconis is finally back in the United States after spending 507 days in a Japanese prison for accidentally killing a woman and her son-in-law after losing consciousness while driving down from a visit to Mount Fuji with his wife and children. Ridge Alconis at the time was so out of it, the screams of his daughter or the collision did not rouse him. Alconis, encouraged by his lawyers to cooperate, pleaded guilty and paid the victim's family $1.6 $1.6 million. Lieutenant Alconis is now back on U.S. soil, but he's not home with his wife and three kids. He is right now in a U.S. federal prison under the control of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. It's now up to the Justice Department's Parole Commission to come together and try to decide what a comparable punishment in the U.S. would have been. This is a case the lead's been following since the beginning. And Lieutenant Alconis's wife, Brittany Alconis, joins me now with her first interview since Ridge was transferred back into the U.S. Uh, Brittany, first of all, first and foremost, you've seen him now. How is Ridge and how are you and the kids? Um, I would say all things considered, he's he's doing pretty well. Um, seeing the kids have him for the first time was incredible. Um, but he's still in prison. He's still not home. They still ask me every day if he's going to be home for Christmas, and it is still a question I can't answer. And, and tell me about the visit if you can. Uh, I know there was some misunderstanding early on. The prison said he would not be able to have visitors. Then the warden got involved and said that's not true and allowed you and the kids to visit. Um, tell me what you can about the visit. It's great that you got to hug him. It's great the kids got to, to hug him. Is it? Is it... I mean, he's still in prison, obviously, which is not where you want him to be yet. You're able to visit him. He is in the United States. Um, how, how are you all doing? You know, it's, we're, we're learning a new prison system. Um, before, it was four visits, four or five visits a month, half an hour behind glass, supervised with, with guards and with... Um, with interpreters writing down our conversation. Now it's more in a, a group setting, a, a room. We don't have people listening in. My my kids love that. They're much more comfortable. Like I said, they got to hug him. There was confusion immediately. We were told it would be up to 90 days to get our background checks approved. Um, but, you know, the prison's doing what they can. And they worked really hard to get us in the next day. We're able to visit him now. Um, it's not easy. We used to be 20 minutes away from the prison. Now I can expect to drive, you know, for four hours in Los Angeles traffic. And so um, it's not easy, but parts of it are better, I guess. Um, plus, we have we have family nearby. And so that's been a big help. We, we were told that Congressman uh, Nick Lalota tried to see uh, your husband this weekend. He was denied access. Do you know anything about that? Um, yeah, I was there. He had approval from the warden to visit with Ridge. Um, he flew all the way from New York to see him that morning when he tried to. He was told that DOJ and DC <coughs> had denied his request. Um, Congressman Levin 
uh, he was supposed to visit Ridge tomorrow. He was also told that his request was denied. However, right before I got on with you, I was told that he should be able to see Ridge tomorrow. So hopefully that's just another problem being solved. So just to remind people, this was a horrible accident, but it was an accident. This was, he wasn't drinking, he wasn't on drugs. It was a horrible accident where he lost consciousness and this accident happened. He pleaded guilty and paid restitution to the family in Japan. Um, and it was, it was a surprise that the Japanese court sentenced him to, to serve one day let alone 507. Mm -hmm. When do you expect the parole commission to weigh in? <laughs> I have no idea. Honestly, I, I don't think it has anything to do with Ridge. Um, you know, I think there's other motivations in play. There's a couple ways Ridge could be home for Christmas. One is through the parole commission. Um, if they took their normal steps, it, it could take months. However, <coughs> it could take days. Um, the factual and legal uh, issues in this case are all very simple. Our lawyers have provided the DOJ with absolutely everything they need. And so, like I said, if we went the normal steps through DOJ, he could be home for Christmas. The other option, Ridge came home through the Council of Europe Treaty. In line with the treaty, the president retains his right to commutation or pardon, and he could commute Ridge's sentence with um, you know, the stroke of a pen and Ridge could be home. He could have done it days ago. He could do it today. He could do it tomorrow. Um, but what yeah. what <clears throat> the president will do, what DOJ will do, I have no idea. I actually asked about that, and I don't, I would defer to you, but I was told that the president doesn't have the power to pardon or commute sentences in this situation the same way he doesn't if it's a state sentence, like if Georgia or Pennsylvania were to, to sentence. Um, it, I hope you're right and then the president can act, but just FYI, I was, I was told by the Department of Justice um, or maybe it yeah. was by the White House that that's not the case. I mean, there's been a lot of lawyers going back and forth and I've yet to find a lawyer without a political agenda that right. agrees that uh, the president does not have the power. I have read the Council of Europe Treaty. I am not a lawyer. Right. However, I, even I can read the line that specifically states that the president retains commutation power. Okay. All right. Well, you know much, much more about it than I do. We know Vice President <laughs> Harris and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, were told that they were both personally involved in, in getting him released from Japan uh, to the U.S. When you found out that he was being uh, released from Japan, but to federal prison, not to freedom. Um, was that shocking? Is that what you expected? Uh, what went through your mind? The, you know, the process had been outlined to me very well. I knew that that would be the initial step. Um, however, there was never a strict guideline as to how long he would be in prison. Uh, I am shocked that he remains there today. I am shocked that he could be there for months. Um, you know, w one difference with U.S. prison is that Ridge can actually send me messages. And he sent me one today and he said, I always knew that I may have to sacrifice my life in a time of war for my country, but I had no idea I would be forced to sacrifice my liberty in a time of peace. And that's what's happening. I mean, every morning my children wake up, they are paying the price of the U.S.-Japan alliance. He should not be in prison right now. He could be home. 
if DOJ and if the president wanted him to be home, he would be home and he could be home for Christmas. Is there something so worse? No, I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I was just saying ramble. it was it's not rambling. It's, it's just I wondered if it's in a way because he has served his nation, is serving his nation still. Is there something worse about the fact that he is being held in an American prison for this horrible accident that on its face does not appear to be criminal? I mean, it's tragic, but it does not appear to be a criminal act. Is there something worse about him being imprisoned in the United States, even though there are obviously good things about it? You, you, know, this, the, you have more privacy when you visit. He's in the United States and on and on. He can message you. But is there something worse in a way about the fact that now he's in an American prison instead of a J Japanese prison? It's absolutely worse. In Japan, you can read the human rights reports. There is no expectation to due process. In America, that's supposed to be different. Um, you know, we knew that he would be treated unfairly there, but the goal was once he got back to the US, he would be treated fairly. And everyone knows what we've been through. And I, when I say everyone, I mean everyone in the government, everyone we've been working with, they know what happened. Like I said, there is nothing factually complicated about this case. There's nothing legally complicated about this case. They know what's happening. They know why he's in prison. And it has nothing to do with him. And it has nothing to do with the accident. Well, it's all to appease a foreign nation. Brittany Alconis, um, we're not done covering the story. And we're not going to be done till he's out. Um, thank you for talking to us. Uh, keep talking to us, keep coming, keep coming on, and um, I look forward to the interview with Ridge by your side. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Coming up just in, the new discrimination lawsuit filed after a CNN investigation into the largest credit union in the country, plus the alarming number of bomb threats called into synagogues in the United States in just a few days. More in, our, in the rising uh, anti-Semitism in the United States and our law and justice lead. More than 400 Jewish institutions across the U.S. received, thankfully, false threats over the weekend, according to the Anti-Defamation League and the Secure Community Network. That's a nonprofit that tracks threats across Jewish communities. They say that synagogues across the U.S. received more bomb th threats in a single day than in all of last year combined. Let's bring in CNN's Josh Campbell. And Josh, there has obviously been an increase in these threats against the Jewish community in the United States since October 7th. Um, right now, none of the threats have been deemed credible. Tell us specifically what these messages were threatening. Yeah, Jake, you know, I was just talking to the threat watchers at ADL who monitor this, uh, these types of incidents, and they were telling me that all of these were emails that were received by, as you mentioned, over 400 institutions uh, associated with the Jewish community, essentially warning that there were explosive devices within uh, the institution that obviously causing you know, widespread chaos, um, uh, resulting in law enforcement having to respond. Now, these uh, uh, analysts believe that this was uh, one person or a small group of people. And that's because all the messages were similar. Uh, there was a purported uh, group name that was used that was similar in all these messages. Uh, and as you mentioned, although none of them actually turned out to be credible, these were all hoaxes. Uh, they certainly caused a lot of fear, uh, not to mention tying up countless law enforcement resources responding, Jake. How difficult is it for law enforcement to investigate these kinds of threats and find out who's behind them? 
So technical analysis is key here. These messages are sent anonymously, uh, and so it's very difficult to track, particularly if the perpetrator is located overseas. That said, we have seen uh, in recent months the FBI and state and local law enforcement officers successful at finding these hoax people, uh, perpetrators, including here where I am in Southern California. Just last week, uh, a juvenile was arrested. He was part of what authorities described as a swatting ring, uh, and that was done through technical analysis, looking at these online servers uh, where some of these communications between group members take place, and then ultimately finding and holding accountable the perpetrator, Jake. And how have Jewish institutions been forced to adapt to this increased threat level uh, since October 7th? Yeah, it's really despicable that they even have to do so. But we know that around synagogues, for example, there's increased security. As far as techniques in responding, uh, security officials say that, you know, whereas in the past, if you receive a bomb threat, that typically leads to a mass evacuation. Now they're more circumspect and, you know, perhaps doing a cursory search in order to try to identify whether there's any type of device, obviously, uh, uh, you know, that you can see with your own eyes. They do eventually uh, end up moving people to safety, but not the mass rush uh, that we've seen in the past. And that's because a lot of these perpetrators traders are targeting institutions that stream their services online, Jake. So they presumably want to see uh, the actual results of, you know, of their despicable actions. And then lastly, it's worth pointing out, Jake, that we're learning from threat watchers that they are now on the dark web as well, searching for these groups, finding them, communicating with each other, sending that information to law enforcement. All right, Josh Campbell in Los Angeles for us. Thanks so much. An update now to a CNN investigation we told you about last week, a class action lawsuit alleging racial discrimination against Navy Federal Credit Union, the largest credit union in the country. CNN's Renee Marsh uh, brought us this story last week and is with me now. And Renee, this lawsuit came after your reporting. Tell us about the legal fallout. Right. So this is the largest credit union. They just got hit with this class action lawsuit. Three uh, law firms filed this suit, including uh, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump's law firm. Uh, they filed it on Sunday in federal court in Virginia. Uh, they are arguing in this lawsuit that Navy Federal Credit Union uh, uses discriminatory practices against black and Latino borrowers. And this, again, a direct result of CNN's investigation that found that this credit union had the widest disparity of many of the major uh, lending institutions when it came to who they approved and denied for these conventional mortgage loans. Now, within this lawsuit, they say that Navy Federal's claims of community support are meaningless in the face of its actions, uh, systemic discrimination in housing, in violation of federal law. Those are the words within this lawsuit. Uh, Navy Federal Credit Union, we reached out to them today um, in light of this, have not heard back from them yet. But when we reported this story last week, they did say that they are committed to fair lending practices. And just another footnote coming out of D.C., Representative Waters now calling for an investigation by federal regulators. Jane. All right, Renee, stay on top of the story uh, and keep uh, bringing us uh, the update. Important uh, journalism from you. Appreciate it. Coming up, the defense by Donald Trump revealed by CNN's K-File team that shows him going to bat for a man once best known for being on Twitter pushing racist and anti-Semitic nonsense. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. 
Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Any moment now, he's expected to sign a controversial bill that would make it uh, illegal for migrants to cross the border into Texas. Is this law necessary? I'll ask a Democrat in Congress whose district sits along the border. Plus, a significant shift, some say, for the Catholic Church now allowing priests to informally bless same-sex couples, although not their union itself. There are limits that come along with this ruling that some call landmark. Leading this hour, with four weeks until Iowans cast the nation's first votes in the 2024 presidential race, the dehumanizing rhetoric of Adolf Hitler is once again alive and well on a national political stage. This time, of course, in the United States. This time given life by former president and current Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump, whose thoughts on immigrants were made shockingly crystal clear over the weekend. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. Uh, the crime is going to be tremendous. South America, Africa, Asia. No mention of Europe in Mr. Trump's list. And he uses the term poisoning the blood of our country. Poisoning the blood of our country. If you were to open up a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf, you would find the Nazi leader describing the mixing of non-Germans with Germans as poisoning. The Jew, Hitler wrote, quote, poisons the blood of others. This, according to Hitler, posed an existential threat to Germany because, quote, all great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning, unquote. There's really no other way to say it. Donald Trump's language mirrors this directly. And this wasn't a one-off. Trump then went to Nevada on Sunday and used the same scare tactic with zero evidence that migrants are largely coming to the United States from prisons and from mental institutions. He made the campaign promise to begin the largest deportation of undocumented immigrants in American history. We must use any and all resources needed to stop the invasion of our country, including moving thousands of troops currently stationed overseas in countries that don't like us. Strengthening the border is one thing. This is entirely another. Mr. Trump said he would remove migrants by, from the country by invoking part of the Alien and Sedition Acts. That's a set of quite constitutionally questionable laws from 1798 passed under the John Adams administration. Three of the four acts expired when Thomas Jefferson became president, except for a modified version of one, the Alien Enemies Act, which authorizes the president to detain, relocate, or deport non-citizens in times of war. And yes, this has been used and abused in modern times, including during World War II. Republican reactions to Trump's latest words on immigration have, not surprisingly, been mostly muted, aside from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who told me that those words were, quote, disgusting. Sitting Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who used to be quite active in trying to push immigration reform, he doesn't seem overly concerned. We're talking about language. 
I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. Even I believe it, in legal immigration. I have no animosity toward people trying to come to our country. I have animosity against terrorists and against drug dealers. Graham is dismissing words from Donald Trump as inconsequential. And, you know, maybe they are to you, maybe they are to me, but we have seen Mr. Trump's words become calls to action on January 6, 2021, of course. But don't forget the climate of the 2018 midterm elections, the Donald Trump Fox warnings about this caravan of migrants, terrifying migrants funded by George Soros, they said. It was rhetoric, mere words, but it dovetailed nicely with the very racist great replacement theory that Jews are funding migrants to come to the United States to replace the white people of the United States. It's a sick, twisted conspiracy theory. But they're just words, right? A conspiracy theory, just words. But they become, to some sick minds, calls to action. And right in the middle of that campaign, October 27th, 2018, the Tree of Life Synagogue Massacre, 11 Jews killed, the deadliest deadliest attack on Jewish Americans in the United States history. But even that shooting did not stop Trump from continuing to fuel these deranged rumors. Just days later, he suggested that wealthy financier George Soros, who is Jewish, may have been actually paying for the migrant caravan. No record of this, no proof of this, but he said it anyway. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. No, I wouldn't, I don't know who, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of people say yes. A lot of people say yes. Rhetoric inspired bloodshed. Meanwhile, continued. So that was 2018. Flash forward, August 3rd, 2019. The El Paso Walmart shooting. 23 people killed. And this sick white replacement theory continues. May 14th, 2022, the supermarket shooting in Buffalo, New York, 10 killed. All of those murders were inspired by these mere words. As my friend and colleague Van Jones points out, presidents have a way of calling the American people to act. John F. Kennedy called us to serve. Ask not what your country can do for you. Called us to serve. He formed the Peace Corps. Ronald Reagan ushered in an era of national pride and patriotism. What exactly is Donald Trump calling us to do? Amidst all of this comes a MAGA cause celeb that is stunning, but also fits in nicely with all this. Donald Trump and his son, Don Jr., have recently come to the defense of this guy. For those of you on Twitter some time ago, you might recall an account called Ricky Vaughn. It offered anti-Semitic, racist, anti-Muslim, misogynistic filth every day. Now, Ricky Vaughn was unmasked in 2018. His vile posts ended after that. His real name is Doug Mackey. He has since been convicted of election interference for putting out false voting information. Andrew Kaczynski is here. He's a senior editor and founding member of K-File, a CNN investigative team. Andrew, why is Donald Trump defending this guy? Well, that's right. So Mackey was convicted in March of inter intervening in the 2016 election. Now, he posted this meme here that prosecutors say was meant to trick voters into thinking that they could vote for Hillary Clinton by text 
which they say 4,900 people actually did. Now, Mackey and the Trumps, they claim this was just satire. It was a joke that no reasonable person could fall for. But prosecutors allege this was part of a much more sinister plot to deprive people of their right to vote. Flash forward to today, Mackey was sentenced in October. Now he's out waiting an appeal. And Donald Trump is using him as an example of what he says is Joe Biden's Justice Department going after his own supporters. Take a listen to this clip of him. Crooked Joe and his henchmen have tried to shut down free speech with a massive government censorship operation to silence their critics. They're putting Douglas McKay in jail for sharing a joking meme about Hillary Clinton seven years ago. Nobody ever heard of anything like that. So what's interesting about this too, Jake, is that he was investigated uh, by Trump's own Department of Justice. He was charged just one week into Biden's new administration. And Andrew, there's obviously more to it than just this text to vote scheme, right? I mean, Donald Trump and his son are choosing to rally behind a horrible guy, notorious for posting, you know, blatantly anti-Semitic, blatantly racist, blatantly anti-immigrant, blatantly sexist memes over and over there. It's, I mean, they're choosing who they are supporting. They could get behind any perceived injustice out there in the United States. There's no shortage of them. They're choosing to get behind this guy. Well, that's right. And they sort of portrayed him uh, somewhat sympathetically as just a regular Trump supporter. But as you said, if people who were on Twitter in 2016 remember the Ricky Vaughn pseudonym account, it shared some of the most vile, racist and anti-Semitic content uh, that we've ever seen. We can't even really show any of it on air because it's so offensive. He regularly used the N-word where he referred to black people as feral. He shared anti-Semitic propaganda that was reminiscent uh, of Nazi Germany, uh, cart racist cartoons. Uh, in this one post right here, take a look at it. He uh, says that the Jews fear that Donald Trump is Hitler because they know that they have done great evil in America. They fear uh, justice will be done. There was a post where he joked about making a cake uh, that talked about gassing the Jews using a slur for Jews, which uh, with a symbol for hail Hitler. And it's not like this stuff was, you know, just sort of here or there. This was essentially on his feed. This is why he was popular on Twitter. And now that you've looked at that, take a, a listen to what Donald Trump Jr. said about him when he hosted him. Uh, so, well, Donald Trump Jr. had him on his podcast and he, he praised this guy. Um, essentially, he said it was maybe his favorite Twitter account of all time. So, I mean, we should also note this isn't just like some fringe guy, as you know, like this was I mean, there were studies during that period of 2016 uh, of the biggest influencers on Twitter. And he was one. I mean, his account was more influential. I think I remember seeing more influential than, than some like big people like Bill Maher. I mean, his stuff was seen. Uh, it was filthy, disgusting, racist, white supremacist propaganda. So now he's been sentenced because he committed a crime and was found guilty. Uh, and what does Mackey have to say about this all? So we did reach out to his attorney. We asked about all of this. They gave us a statement uh, where they said that he regrets the tone uh, and substance of these posts. They do not reflect 
his current views or the person that he's been the last several years. But they also add that he's uh, grateful that former President Trump, his son, and thousands across the political spectrum can see through these smears and distractions and recommend, uh, recognize that his case is about protecting the First Amendment rights of all Americans. All right, Andrew Kaczynski, thanks so much. Um, let's bring in CNN senior national security analyst, Juliet Kayyem, former assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and the woman who taught me the word stochastic in terms of stochastic terrorism. The idea, well, first of all, why don't you just explain it? Explain what stochastic terrorism is in the context of Donald Trump continuing to spew not just I want stronger borders rhetoric, not just, you know, we need to take control of who comes into this country, reasonable conservative positions, but calling immigrants from Africa, Asia, and South America poison in the bloodstream of the United States. What does that potentially do for right. unbalanced people out there? So stochastic terrorism is just a technique that Trump uh, has perfected in many ways. And we talked about it over the years. And it's a way of using language that is clearly meant to incite some percentage of the people listening for a violent purpose or for a sort of noxious purpose, as, as, as the case may be. But it's not directed. I mean, in other words, Trump is good at sort of creating this atmosphere so that he can say, I didn't mean for people to to, to go into the synagogue and, and kill or to go into the in Buffalo and, and kill a bunch of African-Americans. I didn't mean it. I never said to do that. But the language itself is creating an environment where he knows that his listeners are some of his listeners, I should be clear here, um, will get inside of him. But that's but let's just be clear. That's why he's doing it. I mean, we can no longer say that Trump is doing this as a means to an end. This is the end. This is why he's doing it. There's no, you know, this this Lindsey Graham. It's just words. But we we like the immigration policy. No, there's it's it's. It's the end. I mean, when he says things like the noxiousness and the poisoning of the blood, that's not to, to simply just win an election. That is, in fact, what his theory is. And I, and I just want to make clear to viewers who might support Trump's draconian immigration policies. I come from the world of homeland security. The data is in. Uh, even with the most draconian, most noxious, most disgusting immigration enforcement efforts that we saw in the Trump administration, the Muslim ban, the separation of children uh, from their parents. Uh, immigration, illegal, illegal immigration increased by 14% uh, uh, over his four years. And so even the, so it, he's not doing it to be tough on immigration. He's doing it as an end to create the kind of incitement that we are bound to see in this election period and if he wins, will be unleashed during right. his presidency. And his, his support and his son's support of Doug Mackey, as if they're just like, he's just like yeah. a harmless guy posting memes yeah. uh, and not like a notorious anti-Semitic racist, right. um, is part of this. And today, The Atlantic, you write that a second Trump term would validate the ideologies of far-right extremists, saying, quote, a president with firm control of the Justice Department, who wields a core of supporters willing to use intimidation and political ends and who has maintained a considerable following among police, could overwhelm the ability of state yeah. institutions to uphold the law. How, I mean, this, this is theoretical, obviously, but what are some examples of how you right. envision he might do this? 
Uh, so, so one one thing is is that simply you wouldn't bring federal law enforcement challenges against the very people who are organizing in the way that we saw them organize January sixth. So, January sixth, you have sort of the benefit of a of a new presidency uh, in which the app the legal apparatus is then allowed to be independent of any politics and then prosecute cases as they see fit and people either like it or they don't like it, but it is not, it is at least alive and active. What you will see uh, in a Trump second presidency, and it's, and I can say this because he's telling us, I mean, I, it's not like I'm guessing here, he's telling us is that, is that these kinds of people are victims, uh, the racists, the anti-Semites, others, that, that you don't use the, the federal law enforcement apparatus. Um, and that and look, he's going to have support amongst state governors, prosecutors, and certainly sheriffs. So uh, this is what we should anticipate uh, because he's telling us to anticipate it. All right, Julia Kayyem, thank you so much. For weeks now, poll after poll has shown pathetic polling numbers for President Biden. And now new reporting on just how much those polls might be actually getting to him and have him worried about a possible 2024 loss to Donald Trump. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, President Biden's job approval rating is at an all-time low. A brand new Monmouth University poll out today shows Joe Biden's approval rating at 34%. That's a four-point drop just from September when he was at 38%. The same poll also shows that a majority of Americans disagree with Biden's handling of five key policy areas, infrastructure, jobs, climate change, inflation, and immigration. CNN political analyst Jonah Goldberg is with me along with Democratic strategist Alencia uh, Johnson. And, and Jonah, I, I guess here's the question I have. Would these numbers be as bad with a different Democratic president? In, in other words, empirically, the, the economy is improving. I don't know what people are complaining about with climate change, like he's done more than any other president. I mean, unless you want the world to end, like right. he's done more than any other president has done. If Gretchen Whitmer were the president right now, if, if Pete Buttigieg, if Gavin Newsom, if someone else were there and able to more aggressively get out there, sell it, et cetera, do you think it's possible the numbers would be better? I think it's almost guaranteed the numbers would be better. Um, fair or not, you look at Biden's approval across all of these sorts of issues and also Israel and other things, people are just in a grumpy mood, they're dissatisfied with things and they associate the president as being responsible for it, as a symbol for it. It's very reminiscent to me of George H.W. Bush in 1992. The economy was getting better, but there was just this general grumpiness. Bush seemed out of touch. Bush seemed like he didn't know how to communicate with people. And whether it's fair or not to Biden, Biden, people are projecting a lot of that stuff on Biden and they just feel like he's not up to the job and they want someone different and they somehow have this monarchical notion that the president is somehow connected to the, the animal spirits of the economy and the society. And, if he had more energy and he was more compelling, I think he'd be in much better shape. Well, see, I mean, there are a lot of Democrats who agree with Jonah, as you know. Uh, I'm not saying you do, but I'm sure you hear from them. And one of, the, one of the points is, the ironies is, in 2020, the argument was, Joe Biden is the only one that can beat Trump because he's the only one that can unite the party, all the different groups, the moderates, African-Americans, Latinos, young people, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that argument proved correct. It might be the opposite argument now. He's really having a trouble, trouble holding on to all these groups. 
Yeah, you know, look, I think to the point that you were making, Jonah, that people are feeling frustrated. They're feeling whether it's the economy, whether it's what's happening, foreign affairs, whatever it may be. But Joe Biden has done a lot of work with his coalitions. I think these polls are indicators of what, what people are feeling right now. We are just seeing that the Biden campaign reelection is is ramping up and going state to state, voter to voter and having those engagements. So the conversation might shift in a few months. But I, I get the frustration that some people have because I scale back a little bit. Yes, I support President Biden his reelection. But Democrats, our base typically wants something young and fresh at times. And the disconnect here is that President Biden is the one that beat Donald Trump. He right. does have, he is at the top of the ticket of an agenda that is galvanizing folks. And not only galvanizing folks, but it's actually working. The economy is working, right? He's done, he's had great policies on climate change. He's on the right side of issues when it comes to abortion rights. And so the Biden agenda is the agenda for this coalition. And I think we've got about a year for the campaign to close that gap. So, Jonah, there's some new um, reporting from The Washington Post detailing Biden's frustration with his poll numbers. Uh, the reporting details a meaning between Biden and his, his advisors where, quote, Biden has delivered some stern words. His poll numbers were unacceptably low. He wanted to know what his team and his campaign were doing about it. He complained that his economic message had done little to move the ball, even as the economy was growing and unemployment uh, was falling. It's always a comms problem, right? It's always, right. It's always a comms So here's the thing. You saw he had bad marks on infrastructure. Again, whether you like him or hate him, He's done more for infrastructure sure. than any. I mean, that, it was a joke during the Trump era infrastructure week because there, it never appeared and it, it, there was always a distraction. He actually, not, not him, but Democrats and Republicans actually worked together and Biden signed a bill that is spending billions of dollars. I don't know that it's a comms problem. I don't know what it is, but, but you know, is it just he's the wrong messenger? Uh, look, I mean, I, I, we can make it more complicated, but I don't think it's much more difficult than much more complex than that. I also think, look... We have this tendency to sort of view the Democrats and the Republicans as operating in different universes with different logic and all that. This is the same problem that the Republican candidates have in the Republican primaries. Is they want to talk about issues, right? They're talking about their policies on this, that, or the other thing and how they'd be better on this policy or that policy than Donald Trump or their opponents. Voters are just not really plugged in to policy fights right now or, or issues of any kind. They're in a bad mood. The, it's a lot of culture war stuff, and that culture war stuff isn't just right-left. It's also internal to the Democrats and internal to the Republicans, and it's, it's a moment about vibes. Yeah. Nikki Haley showing some strength uh, in uh, New Hampshire poll, having her at 29 percent among uh, likely Republican uh, primary voters. Donald Trump still far and away in the lead with 44 percent, and yet, you know, that's, she's showing momentum. Anything could happen. Who knows? I want to show you a brand-new uh, campaign ad uh, where she is focused on Biden, but there's kind of like an implicit Trump message. Take a look. I'll just say it. Biden's too old, and Congress is the most exclusive nursing home in America. Washington keeps failing because politicians from yesterday can't lead us into tomorrow. We need term limits, mental competency tests, and a real plan to defeat China and restore our economy. What do you think? I mean, look at the restoring our economy and the China line. Those, to your point, are actually conversations towards Donald Trump. She didn't name him explicitly, but she has to do this in order to drive a wedge between his base and her base to hopefully do it even better in New Hampshire. All right. Jenna Goldberg and Alencia Johnson, good to see both of you. Thank you so much for this hour. Texas Governor Greg, Greg Abbott is going big on a brand new law that tries to do something, anything about the migrant crisis in his state, why this legislation is so controversial. That's now next. law in the state of Texas. <laughs> 
in our national lead, migrant crossings from Mexico into the United States are so bad right now, the numbers, that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection is temporarily suspending rail operations there. This comes on the very same day that Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, signed a new border bill into law. This law makes crossing illegally into Texas a state crime, meaning as of now, police in Texas are empowered to arrest migrants coming into or being in the Lone Star State. CNN's Rosa Flores has more on the new law that will not only test Texas's power, but the country's strained immigration system. Inaction has decimated America. With the stroke of a pen, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law what the ACLU dubs one of the most radical anti-immigrant bills ever passed by any state. Senate Bill 4 is now law in the state of Texas. SB 4 creates a new state crime for illegal entry into Texas, gives local police the power to arrest, and judges the power to remove violators. But the problem is far more than just numbers. After multiple attempts, the controversial measure passed the Republican-led legislature. It's un-American. I can't drive. But not without a fight by the Democratic minority that erupted into this on the House floor. Y'all don't understand the shit that y'all do hurts our community. After Republicans cut debate short. And y'all don't understand that. Y'all don't live in our skin. That is Texas State Representative Armando Wally from Houston. Como estas, brother? An American with Mexican roots. He says he fears SB4 will lead to the racial profiling of Latinos across Texas. Why do we, and those of us that look like me, why do we have to carry our passports around? So you think that U.S. citizens could be arrested under SB4? Yes. The Republican authors of the bill said there was no need to safeguard the measure against racial profiling. Racial profiling is against the law anyway. Texas has not determined the cost of SB4. Some county governments fear it's an unfunded mandate. We don't agree uh, with the cost of being shifted over to our local Texas. I don't. Thirty former immigration judges issued a statement saying the measure is not lawful because immigration is plainly a federal function. Texas Republican Senator Brian Birdwell voted against the measure, saying it's unconstitutional. We are setting a terrible precedent for the future by invalidating our obedience and faithfulness to our Constitution. I believe SB4 is completely constitutional. For Americans outside of Texas, Representative Wally. Wally warns SB4 could be used to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Arizona's 2012 so-called show your papers law, which upheld that immigration is a federal function. This is their roadmap now, now that they have a much favorable Supreme Court. It's not in conflict with the president set in Arizona versus U.S. He always judged a Mexican restaurant by their tortillas. As for Wally, who lost the fight against the law, but was one of the strongest voices against it. It fills me with pride because I've had elderly people today tell me that they were proud that somebody stood up for them, stood up for somebody who didn't have a voice. see that Governor Abbott is behind me. He just signed SB4. Now this law goes into effect in March. The ACLU has threatened to sue and Mexico rejects this law, which Jake, Jake, it will be interesting to see how this works because according to the law, Texas would be able to deport migrants back to Mexico. Unclear how that'll work since Mexico is a sovereign country. 
All right, Rosa Flores in Brownsville, Texas. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas. He represents the 28th District, which covers a, a sizable portion of the border, stretches into San, Ant San Antonio. Uh, Congressman Cuellar, uh, whether this new Texas border law passes constitutional muster or not, um, what do you make of it? Uh, are you worried about Latinos, Americans, just being stopped and asked to present their papers uh, by Texas police? Well, you know, first of all, I think the Supreme Court decided this back in 2010 on the Arizona case, uh, where they said that immigration belongs to the federal government, not the state. I think the state wants to test it because they feel that they have a better majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. The problem is that local law enforcement uh, don't have the training to enforce immigration law. So, of course, there could be some errors that could be done because they just don't get that, uh, that training. This belongs to the U.S. Border Patrol, doesn't belong to the military, belongs only to the U.S. Border Patrol. And, and I guess the, the, the uh, argument being made by Governor Abbott would be, hey, the federal government is not doing enough. Uh, I need to do something. Uh, he also signed a bill today giving more than a billion dollars for border barrier construction. Um, some Texas state lawmakers argue that taxpayers will foot uh, most of the bill. But I, I guess my question is, what, what's your what's your response to that? Because I know you've been critical in the past of the Biden administration not doing uh, enough to protect the border. To, to I mean, countries are allowed to have borders. Um, what's your response to the Governor Abbott argument? Hey, I'm doing something and Biden's not doing enough. Well, you know, certainly he can do something, but he can work with the federal government. There's so many ways that they can work with this. Doing something unconstitutional is not the right thing. I do understand his frustration because even I'm frustrated by the lack of activity or more work that can be done by the federal government. Uh, look, we did have Title VIII uh, under President Obama. Secretary Jake Johnson used that uh, very, very well. So there are ways that we can do this. Uh, but again, doing something that unconstitutional doesn't make it right. So there are these Senate negotiations, as you know, tying immigration policies to aid for Ukraine and Israel. Senate Minority Leader John Thune just told Armani Raju there's no way uh, that this uh, border provision is going to get a vote this week. Some of the sticking points in negotiations include uh, Republican desires to enact stricter, stricter requirements for individuals who come into this country and want to claim asylum. Uh, limits on what's called humanitarian parole that allows individuals such as Afghans or Ukrainians to come into the U.S., and also a new way to expel migrants more quickly. Now, at least one Democratic strategist says these are similar to Trump-era policies. What do you think? Do you have a problem with any of those three I just mentioned? Well, again, I don't see, I haven't seen the details. I have any communications uh, with some of the negotiators, and I do support stricter policies, but at the same time, not to the extreme where you don't allow the rights of the immigrants to um, uh, to claim asylum. But do I believe in stricter? Yes. Uh, and, and again, I think we can still have stricter policies without changing the law. It's called Title VIII. So we got to make sure that we're able to do that. But unfortunately, the, you know, the you know, they were looking at some changes to asylum. Uh, keep in mind, uh, Jake, that when you look at the asylum law, the asylum law is very clear. Uh, it's state persecution based on five things, five things only, and that is nationality, race, uh, political beliefs, religious, uh, social class. Um, and, and those are the five things. 
If you're coming here because you're hungry, uh, it doesn't allow you to come in. If you're coming here because uh, you want a job, it doesn't allow you. You want to get away from crime, it doesn't allow you under asylum. But most of those people at the end of the day, which is at the end of four or five years, maybe six years in the future, 90% of them are going to be rejected by the uh, by immigration judge. So my question is, why are we allowing so many people in when at the end of the day, they're not supposed to be here uh, according to immigration law? Did you hear the language that Donald Trump used over the weekend several times uh, talking about uh, immigrants coming from South America, Africa, and Asia, and Asia uh, poisoning the bloodstream of the United States. Uh, he's used it before, but he's using it more. And I know there are a lot of people that have concerns uh, about potential violence, as we saw in El Paso at the Walmart in 2019. You know, what he's using, those words do not belong in an immigration fight. Unfortunately, when you look at the history of the United States, there are some things that have been said, very ugly things, ugly things, uh, things uh, like those words should definitely not be part of the uh, civil discourse on immigration uh, changes. Democratic Congressman uh, Henry Cuellar of Texas, thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the notable announcement today from the Catholic Church that affects blessings for same-sex couples. Stay with us. In our faith lead, Pope Francis has authorized priests to be able to informally bless same-sex couples and individuals. This is not the same as a liturgical blessing or a blessing of same-sex marriages, but it is being seen as a symbolic shift in the way LGBTQ couples are treated by the Catholic Church. CNN's Vatican correspondent Christopher Lamb is here. Christopher, how exactly can these blessings be given according to the Vatican? Well, Jake, I think this is really the most significant development under the Francis pontificate in terms of the church's ministry and offer of welcome to LGBTQ Catholics and same-sex couples. Now, the Vatican document today said that these blessings can take place in informal settings. They suggested that they could happen uh, during pilgrimages or at Catholic shrines uh, or even on the street. It was very much uh, emphasized that they should be informal and not in church services. But the really significant thing is that the Vatican in the past has totally ruled out the possibility of blessings for same-sex couples. In 2021, the Vatican said that a document said that the church cannot offer blessings of same-sex couples because the church cannot bless sin. Whereas today, the Vatican document said that people who request a blessing should not be subjected to some exhaustive moral analysis, but there should be ways found to welcome them and to recognize their request for a blessing. So really a very significant and important development. Jake. Obviously not everyone within the Catholic Church shares, uh, is, a, is a fan of this Pope or, or shares his view uh, of same-sex individuals. Uh, are Catholic priests still able to, if they want, to deny blessings for same-sex individuals or same-sex couples? Yes, they are, and the document is quite clear that it is up to the discretion or the judgment of the priest as to whether a blessing is offered. As you say, there is a significant uh, minority uh, of Catholics, particularly those in high positions of the clergy, who do not share Pope Francis's vision. And we're already seeing some pushback 
uh, to this ruling. Uh, but there will, of course, be others who will welcome it and think it is well overdue. Uh, we are certainly going to see a big discussion and debate about this very important uh, development. But stand by for some significant pushback. Jake. All right, Christopher Lamb at the Vatican. Oh, no, you're in London. Okay, but our new Vatican correspondent. Thank you so much. Coming up, what one advocate calls the greatest legal victory for veterans in American history, offering hope to try to end homelessness for thousands of vets in one major American city, and perhaps, perhaps, the United States? Stay with us. We have an update now to a story that we've been closely following on the lead for years. A group of veterans in Los Angeles County has won a major legal victory. They're asking the federal government to provide veterans with housing on land that since 1888, yes, you heard that correctly, 1888, is supposed to be theirs, even though the Veterans Affairs Department has leased it to a number of other organizations. CNN's Nick Watt reports on the ruling that allows the veterans' lawsuit to move forward. This sprawling VA campus in West Los Angeles was once home to 4,000 veterans. The land was given to vets way back in 1888, but now many buildings lie dilapidated, unused, while around 4,000 veterans are homeless in L.A. There is a VA hospital here, but also UCLA's beautiful baseball field and the exclusive Brentwood School's splendid sports facilities. A federal judge now says he wants thousands of veterans experiencing homelessness to live here once more and fast. And he wants the VA to quit leasing some of the land. I think all of us are losing patience. This should not have been going on as long as it has. This has been a problem for decades. After campaigning by Reynolds and others, as well as CNN shining a light on decades of mismanagement. For years, I believe it was stolen. 14 veterans filed suit against their government, demanding more housing here for needy vets, better access to the care they need, and an end to the leases for the likes of Brentwood School. The government filed motions to dismiss this week. Judge David Carter himself, a Vietnam War veteran and a Purple Heart recipient, denied those motions in a ruling. The case goes ahead. It's a great victory. It's the greatest legal victory on behalf of veterans in the history of the country. It's the beginning of the end of veteran homelessness in Los Angeles and really throughout the nation. After a previous lawsuit, construction of units for homeless vets is underway on this land. More than 800 units should be open by now, but only 233 are actually finished. Red tape is slowing construction and preventing some disabled vets like Josh Erickson from moving in. How did you lose your leg? I stepped on a, an IED in Afghanistan. The government says his disability allowance means he earns too much to qualify, so he's still homeless. With your own bathroom, your own, you know, your own place to live on that campus, what would that mean to you? Ah, uh, that would mean the world to me. That's all I ever want. Josh Pettit recently managed to move in. He says housing helps a lot. It can mean everything. It can mean stability. Stability, start, with the start of stability, you can start to fix other other problems, but if you're out on the streets and, you, you know, your only opportunity is to self-medicate to get through your problems, and, you know, that's that's no way to, 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 that's not the answer. Judge Carter wants government departments to stop pointing fingers at each other over what's happened here. He wants a quick settlement. He flashed up this picture of the VA secretary, Dennis McDonough, on the land for the opening of housing units and said, 
If he can fly out here for a ribbon cutting, he can fly out here to work on a settlement plan to house many more homeless vets. This case should not see the inside of a courtroom. The administration and Congress on its own should end veteran homelessness and stop fighting the veterans who fought for this nation. Now, we've been covering this story for a couple of years now. Our latest installment a few months ago was actually about congressional involvement. There was a bill before the Veterans Affairs Committee that would have essentially legalized Brentwood School's lease on the land. The school had spent a lot of money lobbying on the issue. After our report, that wording, that clause was quietly removed from the bill. Now, the VA says it can't comment on this current litigation, but they say that they are committed to ending veteran homelessness and will prioritize it, are prioritizing it at the highest level. Worth noting that veteran homelessness, judging by the latest numbers that just came out last week, is actually rising up 7% between 2022 and 2023. The judge in this case is clearly not going to stand for any more delays. He wants homeless vets off the streets as soon as possible. He said he'll take this to trial next summer, but he wants a settlement way sooner than that. Jake. All right. Important accountability journalism from Nick Watt. Thank you so much for reporting this for so many years. You'll appreciate this next story if you have plans to fly. How the Biden administration is using Southwest Airlines as an example to other airlines of what not to do in the middle of the chaotic holiday travel stretch. Stay with us. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.